you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. We're joined today by UCLA Professor of Nursing Kristen R. Choi. She's also Professor of Public Health and a registered nurse herself who practices at Gateways Hospital in Echo Park. Professor Choi, wonderful to have you back with us on AirTalk. Hi there, Larry. Nice to be here. Given your expertise in nursing, I I wanted to start with the concerns that many of us have about the shortage of nurses in hospitals, particularly in uh, critical care, with so many leaving the profession and so many simply burned out by what they've been dealing with over the past two years. What's your assessment of the state of the profession? Absolutely. Um, I and a lot of others who who look at the nursing workforce are are quite concerned about what's happening in nursing right now. During COVID, we've seen that about one in five nurses have quit their jobs. And there was recently a survey um, that showed that uh, 66% of nurses who work in ICUs uh, were thinking about quitting their jobs. Uh, And those issues are really a big concern for our healthcare systems. Uh, We know that we've been dealing with a nursing shortage for a very long time. Uh, Right now, it's estimated that we will need about 200,000 additional nurses per year through 2030 uh, that that we do not have. And knowing that we have this nursing shortage, we have nurses that are burnt out and uh, in many cases quitting or wanting to quit uh, makes me very concerned for how our healthcare systems will manage in the future. Do you think... Uh, Well, do you think once we're out of the pandemic, Professor, that some of those nurses might return to the profession once things are more typical? It's a good question. You know, I don't know. Um, I think some might. But what we often see is that nurses who work in hospitals in particular and in ICUs, um, ICUs and hospitals are a very difficult environment to work in. Uh, Nurses have to deal with shift work, uh, working nights and weekends and deal with very sick patients Uh, and very labor intensive work, uh, physically intensive and emotionally intensive work. What I suspect will happen is that many nurses who might have left ICUs during COVID may look for jobs in other settings, uh, perhaps in outpatient clinics or other places that are less intense than hospitals uh, and that will continue to see this issue of shortages in hospitals. What does that shortfall of nurses look like actually in a hospital? What sorts of delays? What, what, um, how does that play out on the ground? Yeah, so I think the first thing uh, for, for listeners to know is that these nursing shortages 
make going into a hospital much more risky for you and your loved ones. Uh, there are many, many large studies that have shown that the quality of nursing care and the working conditions for nurses are actually strongly associated with patient outcomes and even patient mortality. And what I mean by that is when nurses uh, are adequately protected, uh, when they have safe staffing ratios, when they are able to take breaks and aren't required to work long overtime hours, and they have time and space to really provide good quality care for patients, those patients are more likely to survive. Uh, whereas when nurses are overworked, overburdened, um, when they have too many patients for them to care for safely, mistakes happen, infections happen, people stay in the hospital longer, and it ends up being more expensive for hospitals, but also worse for patients um, when we don't adequately protect our, our nurses and make sure that they have safe working conditions. So, um, you know, it's really something that I, I think everyone should care about. You never know when you or a loved one will be in the hospital. And uh, those the nurses uh, really um, do play a big role in, in our outcomes when we're sick. Let's talk about traveling nurses because uh, many nurses, we understand, have quit hospitals and gone to work for these companies if, if they're free to move around. Uh, and, you know, maybe you've got nurses whose kids have grown up and, you know, they don't need to come uh, back to their, their home every day so they can go places where there's uh, acute need. And they're paid significantly more, as I understand. What are your thoughts about the role of these, these companies that provide traveling nurses? Traveling nursing is a very interesting change that we're seeing in the nursing workforce right now. In some ways, it's sort of a, um, a gig sort of approach to nursing where nurses work on short-term contracts for these travel agencies and are placed in hospitals that might be dealing with staffing shortages. As you mentioned, Larry, uh, travel nurses are very highly paid, which can attract a lot of nurses to travel nursing. And I think there are sort of two pieces of travel nursing to balance. The first is that I feel that nurses have been undervalued and underpaid in our health system for a very long time. There's an odd paradox in nursing where even though we, we know that uh, paying nurses appropriately and making sure their working conditions are safe saves hospitals money, uh, hospitals tend to see nurses as a cost uh, and often uh, do not want to raise their wages or, or uh, staff nurses at a level that is going to be safe. And so it's very difficult for nurses uh, to be paid appropriately. And I think that part of the move to travel nursing uh, is the opportunity for nurses to feel more valued and to feel that they're being paid more fairly for the work that they're doing. The other piece, though, is that seeing this gig approach to nursing and, and the short-term travel contracts raises a lot of questions to me about um, how care is provided in hospitals. I, I think that sometimes we'd like to think that a nurse is a nurse, they're interchangeable. As long as you have a nurse staffing a unit and staffing patients, it's fine. But of course we know that's actually not true. Um, experience matters, expertise in a specific practice area matters. And uh, this sort of switching out in short-term contracts of nurses, I worry, really erodes um, ex the experience of nurses, the institutional knowledge of nurses. That's so important in, in providing good care to patients. So I hope it's something that we'll study in the future. It's a very interesting trend that I, I'll be curious to see the long-term outcomes. And I was going to ask, do you think it's going to last? Because I, I wonder if after 
we're out the other end of the pandemic, whether being a nurse on staff at a hospital becomes, um, you know, at that point more attractive, particularly if there are pay increases. And and maybe nurses who are traveling won't be able to command the kind of higher compensation that they are now because the acute need at different medical centers, you know, based on the regional demands of COVID is not going to be there at that time. Sure. I, I do think it will continue after COVID. Uh, again, this, this nursing shortage that we're dealing with was an issue before COVID. Uh, hospitals were dealing with serious nurse staffing challenges before COVID. And I think that a lot of nurses will want to go into travel nursing uh, just because of the opportunity for higher pay. I think there will always be um, demand for nurses that want stable full-time jobs, certainly those that have families or other reasons for wanting to be assured that they have a job and aren't on a short-term contract. But I am seeing, uh, you know, in students that I talk to at UCLA and other nurses, especially a lot of younger nurses who are new to the profession and might have a bit more flexibility, are very interested in travel nursing because uh, why wouldn't you be? It's it's a lot more compelling in terms of the pay when you uh, when you look at what some of these travel companies are offering. Well, and there's freedom. I mean, there's if you are able to travel, uh, whether it's within a region and you don't mind making the drive to a hospital that may be farther uh, than the one you were on staff, or if you're willing to travel outside of your area and you can do so, I would think that there is a certain freedom that, you know, if you if you take a job at a hospital, you really don't like it there, you don't like the culture, you do have a freedom to go that you don't if you've made a commitment to stay with a particular hospital longer term. Absolutely. It gives you flexibility if there is an issue in terms of fit with your hospital or unit. And for a lot of younger nurses, I think it's also exciting. You know, I remember a couple months ago, I was giving COVID vaccines uh, and I was working with a travel nurse who told me she had just gotten back from a contract in Hawaii. She was, of course, doing the contract in L.A., uh, and she was being paid, uh, I'm going to say, at least double what I was uh, to be there doing the same thing. So, um, you know, it, it is compelling if you do have that flexibility. Uh, one of the questions I had that I'd heard um, um, from uh, uh, one of our uh, reporters that um, there's months long delay in nurses getting uh, their licenses renewed. Has that affected the availability of nurses? Yes, the the nurse licensure process can be quite uh, onerous depending on the state, uh, and it can take a very long time. During COVID, there were some emergency provisions made to allow nurses who were in their final year of their program and had met all of their requirements to get a faster emergency uh, license. But in the absence of that, it can take a very long time. It can also take a very long time to transfer your nursing license to another state Uh, When I transferred my license to California, it it took about six months. So certainly some of those regulatory issues uh, can make this, this, you know, bottleneck and shortage worse. Uh, It's something that might uh, alleviate in some ways some of the places where there are gaps in the nursing workforce. Uh, Also, our our, uh, healthcare reporter, Jackie Fortier, was wondering about the... um, whether we have seen in the past with nursing uh, travel... um, contractors that go up and down based on previous, you know, whether it's flu season or things like that, has that been sensitive to what's happening with larger issues in, in uh, providing healthcare? Oh, that's a very good question. I actually don't know, you know, to, to my knowledge, and I've done a fair bit of searching on this. I don't think there really is very much research 
on travel nursing and how it affects healthcare and the nursing workforce. So I I don't know if it had fluctuated seasonally in the past, but it's a good question. Pfizer is asking the FDA to allow COVID-19 vaccination for kids under five. Your thoughts on that, uh, Professor Choi, and what parents should consider? Yeah, it's exciting to see this this moving forward. I know that parents who have children under the age of five have been uh, waiting for, for this day and for this vaccine to be approved for young children for a very long time. So it's quite exciting. For this dose uh, of of vaccines for children who are under the age of five, um, Pfizer has taken a slightly different approach than it has for vaccines for uh, children and adults. Uh, The dose is much smaller. It's one-tenth of the dose that was given to adults. Uh, And as I think um, guests on your show have talked about before, Larry, in the initial studies of a two-dose regimen of this smaller microdose of the Pfizer vaccine, it didn't quite elicit the kind of immune response that we would need to see. So Pfizer is looking at testing a third dose right now for that vaccine for infants and very young children, but in the meantime is seeking approval for that two-dose regimen of the smaller dose Uh, right now. Um, So uh, again, I think it's exciting to see that happen. I know this is a long awaited moment for many parents, uh, and I hope that we will see approval soon. Scott in Altadena asks, uh, said I got my booster shot mid-December, then got COVID about a month later. Um, Wondering, is there any way to to find out uh, if I actually had COVID back in January? Sounds like he didn't have a test to confirm that he really did have it uh, last month. Yeah, un- unfortunately, there isn't, uh, at least not that's widely available to people. Um, if you have had COVID or gotten a, um, a, a COVID vaccine, uh, it will show up positive uh, for an antibody test. And so um, there's not really a way to know if you would have had it far back in the past. Uh, but the good news is that, you know, having been vaccinated and having had COVID, uh, I think that you can be fairly confident in, in your level of protection. John in Culver City asks, what sort of compromises have have you and other nurses had to make when considering the difference between what science says nurses should do and what policies are having them do? John says, such as when nurses were expected to work after testing positive for COVID. Yeah, thanks for this question, John. Um, I think this makes the work that nurses do extremely difficult uh, when we are forced to to make that trade-off. I think that nurses uh, really think deeply about their patients and about protecting their patients. And the idea of going to work uh, when you might be positive for COVID and potentially spread it to patients and families uh, is something that makes me feel pretty uncomfortable. And I think a lot of nurses would agree with that. One of the other issues that I know has been very difficult for nurses I know that work in ICUs uh, is seeing so many unvaccinated patients that are so sick uh, and dying in many cases from COVID uh, and knowing that those deaths are preventable. One of the hardest things I think for healthcare providers uh, to, to deal with in the course of their job is seeing people die preventable deaths uh, and deaths that you know could have been avoided. And I think working in that day in and day out, and some nurses in this case for, for years, uh, seeing those deaths happen, and especially now when we know they're preventable, uh, it's it's demoralizing, uh, it's, it's disappointing, it makes the work very hard and I think contributes a good deal to burnout. So, um, you know, I, I certainly appreciate uh, when I see people that do take the science seriously, 
uh, and think about how that affects those of us who are working in healthcare. And even with that, there are some nurses who refuse to get vaccinated. And I haven't seen a count anywhere of, of how many left uh, nursing as a result of California's requirement, because so many have left and, you know, cited like retiring earlier than they thought or, you know, that um, we haven't really had an accounting of that. But do you have any sense of how many nurses were lost because they were unwilling to be vaccinated? Yeah, the um, the only information I've really seen on that has been um, anecdotal. There certainly were cases of nurses that uh, quit or left their jobs or maybe were let go from their jobs because they didn't comply with vaccine mandates. Uh, but that is number is very, very, very small. Um, the vast majority of nurses are fully vaccinated now. And the vast majority of nurses uh, support vaccines uh, and, and want to be vaccinated and want to see their patients vaccinated. Uh, We have a far higher COVID death rate per capita in the United States than other wealthy countries. There are a number of reasons for that. One of the reasons I was thinking of is that we probably have more multi-generational households than, for example, you have in uh, large parts of Western Europe that might be comparable. But Professor Choi, I was interested in your thoughts about some of the differences you thought might contribute to that per capita death rate difference. Yeah, the the differences in death rates uh, across countries are very interesting, and it's um, disappointing, although perhaps not surprising, to see that the United States does have more deaths than other comparable countries uh, in the world. Um, I think one of the big reasons has to do with vaccines. I think in the U.S., we were slow to vaccinate in relation to some other countries. One of the other challenges that we have in the United States is that vaccination is not uniformly distributed across our population. There are some uh, cities and states in the United States that uh, have lagged and to this day lag very far behind on being fully vaccinated. And those pockets of unvaccinated people leave a lot of room for the virus to spread and infect people and, and lead to these hospitalizations and deaths that we see. Also, I was surprised to see the differential on rates of of booster shots, how far behind other countries the U.S. is when it comes to boosters. Yeah, the the booster shot leg is really, really disappointing. Uh, We have um, no shortage of vaccines here in the United States for everybody who wants to to get a booster. Uh, But this has really lagged. uh, And I think it's it's one uh, one piece that we still have a lot of work to do uh, to get people boosted. I think that people are increasingly uh, public health experts and infectious disease experts uh, beginning to consider full vaccination to be three doses rather than two, because there is such compelling evidence that that third booster dose confers a lot of additional protection. Uh, so we have a long ways to go in the United States in, in getting people boosted. Uh, in Denmark, uh, they're taking the European Union lead by scrapping most pandemic restrictions. Uh, they no longer consider COVID-19 a socially critical disease. Different countries are are taking different approaches. As we talked about a few days ago, the UK is is significantly loosening its restrictions. They've they've restricted almost all their domestic uh, removed almost all their domestic restrictions. Masks aren't mandatory anywhere now in England. Vaccine passes aren't required to get into venues. Uh, People no longer advised to work from home. The only legal requirement in England now is to self-isolate after a positive COVID test. Your thoughts about what we're seeing in Europe and whether uh, we might soon be in that place here in the U.S.? Yeah, we we are seeing this this move in, in European countries from, I think, thinking about this 
this COVID situation as a pandemic to a situation where COVID is endemic, uh, meaning it's something that we, we just live with. I think there's pretty good consensus that uh, COVID will be an endemic disease. It's something that we uh, likely will not be able to eradicate entirely, but something that we will live with going forward, kind of like we live with the seasonal flu. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that uh, that that conversation about how we, we move from pandemic to endemic uh, and what it looks like to resume normalcy to the extent that we can is a good one to have. But I also feel that we are not quite there in the United States. Uh, there are a couple of reasons. One, as we just talked about, is vaccines. We're not at a place where we have achieved um, full vaccination or anything close to full vaccination, especially in some states. The other piece is that if you look at our current hospitalizations and deaths, even though we are seeing um, COVID case numbers falling, which is encouraging, uh, there still are a very high number of hospitalizations and deaths. And, and seeing these big uh, outbreaks, the hospitalizations and death that lead outbreaks, it's it's very difficult to say at this point that we are we are at a point where it's endemic or, or it's safe right now. I think that we're still some time off from that in the United States. The BA2 subvariant of the uh, Omicron variant of COVID-19 was analyzed in Denmark in this study that has not really been um, peer-reviewed at this point, but Danish health officials um, looked at people who were infected with that BA2 subvariant and found 39% of people infected with it were likely to infect others in their households. That's compared with 29%, so 10% less, with those who carried the original BA1 version of Omicron. The study looked at 8,500 households in December and January in Denmark. Uh, the subvariant BA2 has become dominant there. Your thoughts about that and, and what appears to be, to some degree, increasing transmissibility. Yeah, the, this subvariant of Omicron, I think, is something that we're, we're watching very closely right now. Um, it does appear that there's early evidence. It's, it's difficult to be confident in the absence of more data, uh, but that it may be more transmissible. And so I think this is something that will be important uh, to keep an eye on, uh, how it's spreading and infecting others, as well as uh, how vaccines are holding up against this new variant. Uh, something, again, that I think we, we need to wait for a bit more data on to, to know for sure if it's something we need to be very alarmed about. Larry and your Belinda emailed us and said uh, yesterday on your Lunar New Year segment, uh, and I'm sorry, I just lost his comment. Uh, it was mentioned that many are foregoing giving red envelopes with cash for fear of passing uh, COVID-19. But isn't the medical consensus that uh, that sort of transmission is very unlikely? Yeah, um, I, I'm not exactly sure about the, the specific situation that, um, that this uh, listener is referring to, but but certainly there is consensus that uh, the coronavirus is primarily spread uh, through through breathing, through small respiratory droplets, and not uh, by contact or by food or, or by other means. So, you know, I, I think that we are pretty confident at this point that um, transmission via surface spread is is pretty um, pretty unlikely. Yeah, it was on yesterday's segment we were asking listeners how they were celebrating the Lunar New Year, and and uh, oh, I see. A couple of our guests mentioned that there were some people who were using Venmo or other uh, payment methods in lieu of doing the traditional red envelope with cash because there was fear of, of, of passing on COVID through the envelope. 
Oh, I, I see. Yeah, that, that makes sense then. Yeah, I think this is something that, you know, early in the pandemic, this was a concern. I know a lot of us were worried about how the virus was transmitted and if, if it could be transmitted via surfaces. Uh, but since then, we've learned quite a bit more about it and do know that the primary uh, way that it is transmitted is through respiratory droplets, not through surfaces. Jacqueline in Encino said, I want to say thank you to Professor Choi. This is an invaluable conversation. I lost my father this summer. He was in the ICU. I've thought every single day about these nurses and what they've endured and how they continue to work to protect us all. Jacqueline, thank you. You very much. Nice. It's a very nice sentiment. And we're so sorry, Jacqueline, for the loss of your father. Yeah, absolutely. Would echo um, uh, what you just said, Larry. Thank you very much. It, it certainly means a lot to hear from people that, uh, you know, have seen the work that nurses are doing and recognizing it, especially as it's um, really faded out of uh, the media and and not getting attention the way it did at the beginning of the pandemic. So yes, thank you for that comment. Jamie in Culver City said, I've heard competing arguments um, that there's a real shortage of nurses, but on the other side, that there are plenty of nurses. Hospitals just aren't willing to pay them enough. Uh, Jamie would like to know your opinion of, of those perspectives. Yeah. So there are a lot of nurses out there in the U.S. that, you know, potentially could be working more nurses who work part time or or who may not be working for other reasons that feasibly could be brought into the nursing workforce if there were incentives. So I, I think that this is this is a fair point. Uh, that there are a lot more incentives we could think about to get more nurses who are not working into the workforce. Uh, But that being said, there also is reason to believe that we do have some shortages that will need to be filled by new nurses coming in. The nursing workforce uh, is uh, older on average. Uh, The average nurse, I believe their age is in the 50s. Uh, And so a lot of the nurses in our workforce are um, close to retirement age or retiring. And uh, I think that we, we do need to think about bringing new nurses into the workforce. This is a big challenge for us. Um, I I work in a school of nursing and there are a lot of bottlenecks when it comes to uh, training more nurses and getting them into the workforce that we have a lot of work to do on the education side. Uh, But I think that, you know, we can think about both of these strategies when we think about dealing with the shortfall. How do we bring more nurses who are not working into the workforce? And then also, how do we get new nurses trained and on board? Stephen LaCanata tweets at AirTalk, would additional hazard pay or some increased tax credit induce more nurses to stay or or take up the profession? I mean, that that sounds great, but I know a lot of the hospitals, they've lost so much money because they haven't been able to do um, all the procedures that they typically would, um, you know, non-essential sorts of procedures that they've they've taken a big revenue hit out of this. Uh, your thoughts, Professor Choi? Yeah, you know, I, I think the idea of, you know, some sort of hazard pay or retention bonus that has been tried in a lot of settings and a lot of nurses have gotten those things. Most nurses I know that have worked at facilities that give hazard pay or retention bonuses, uh, those numbers are really laughable in comparison to what travel nurses are making. So I think in a lot of ways, uh, they do still fall short and can can uh, not quite make nurses feel appreciated in the way you might think. Uh, going forward, though, I, I think it's certainly something to consider. Um, retention bonuses and thinking about how do we keep nurses that we know are experienced and have something valuable to offer. Uh, in terms of taking up the profession, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, it's 
the, the nursing shortage is not for lack of applicants. Every year we turn away thousands and thousands of qualified applicants who really want to be nurses. Uh, the shortage is really in our schools of nursing. We have, uh, along with our nursing shortage, a serious shortage of nursing professors and faculty who can teach uh, incoming nurses. Uh, and that creates a bottleneck for, for really the whole profession and all of our healthcare systems. Why is that? With so many nurses, you would think you'd have you know, fairly good slice of them who would get advanced degrees and want to move into teaching? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Right now in the U.S., less than 1% of nurses have a PhD, and that's usually something that's required to teach at a place like UCLA. I think a lot of it's because, you know, when people who go into nursing um, often don't think of themselves maybe as going into an academic career or, or teaching or research. I think a lot of them really wanna work clinically and work with patients. And so a lot of nurses who do get advanced degrees don't do so until much later in their careers when they don't have many years left to work uh, in, in a leadership or education role. The other piece is that uh, nursing educators are, are also not paid very highly. Uh, you can make a good deal more money working as a nurse practitioner or other advanced sorts of roles in healthcare versus working as an educator. So um, there, there are incentive challenges there as well. Joshua in Riverside emailed us, one issue with vaccine mandates versus requirements for traditional vaccines, MMR and polio vaccines don't provide protection from some level of illness. They provide complete protection. The protection from severe illness only makes COVID vaccine mandates a hard sell for many. Is this maybe why so many nurses had a hard time with the full mandate and why booster uptake is so low. Yeah, I think that there has been um, some misunderstanding of the COVID vaccines. I think that uh, people, um, when they first came out, and, and again, I think it's understandable to some degree because the vaccine uh, development and rollout happened so much more quickly than we were expecting. I think a lot of people thought that getting a vaccine meant they would never get COVID and that some of the messaging there uh, may have been a bit off in terms of helping people understand that the real intent of a vaccine is to protect you from hospitalization and death. Uh, but not from any infection whatsoever in all cases. Uh, well, for, for nurses, it may affect nurses as well in thinking that way. I think that's definitely possible. Uh, for a lot of nurses, though, the, the mandates uh, are often viewed as more of a labor issue, uh, more so than believing that vaccines are not effective. I, I You know, I... I... I wonder about the messaging because, um, you know, one of the things we talked very early on in the pandemic was that this would be more comparable to a flu shot as as opposed to the kind of complete protection from an MMR vaccine. And that this was this the threshold even for uh, going forward on on a vaccine. Wasn't it something like 60 percent efficacy was was the threshold. So then when we saw over 90 percent efficacy in clinical trials, it was like, wow, these these vaccines are really, really effective. The response wasn't, oh, my gosh, you know, for for five to 10 percent of people, they're still going to get it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and so first, as we've seen um, these vaccines we rolled out in the real world, those efficacy rates that we saw in the first clinical trials are a bit lower. They're still very good in the you know, 70 and 80% percent range, but they're a bit lower than those 90, 95% effectiveness rates that we saw in just a few people who were in the clinical trials. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think that uh, we, we've seen that effectiveness um, more now that we have real world data. 
I, I think the other piece that people sometimes lose sight of is that we often think of vaccines in terms of our individual risk and as a way to protect ourselves individually. And that's absolutely true. Um, there also, though, is, is a public health approach to thinking about vaccines. And when we think about vaccination, even if the vaccines are not 100% effective for us as individuals, when we get to a place of herd immunity in our whole population, that protects all of us. Um, and so I think that there's sort of a two-pronged lens for looking at vaccines, even if they're not perfect. It's how it protects us as individuals, but also how it protects our whole population. Professor Choi, thank you for being with us again. We appreciate it so much, and we wish you and all your colleagues at UCLA all the best. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Thanks for having me, Larry. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.